Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 13th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It's three years now since uh, the murder of Keane Mulready Woods in January of 2020. It was a heinous and appalling murder and the remains of uh, the 17-year-old boy were treated in a disgraceful and inhumane way. That was the view of Mr Justice Tony Hunt who was passing down sentences to two men who had pleaded guilty to facilitating a criminal organisation to carry out the murder. Let's speak uh, to Stephen Breen, who's the crime correspondent with uh, The Sun. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning, Stephen. Uh, Paul Crosby and Gerard Cruz uh, were originally being charged uh, with murder, were they not? Uh, But plea bargaining uh, came to this different charge, which they both pleaded guilty to. Yeah, they both pleaded guilty, guilty to uh, facilitating the, the organised criminal gang that was involved in this heinous murder. It was a truly shocking crime where a, a teenager, just 17 years of, uh, of age, was was brutally murdered and then his, his body dismembered. But you know, during the trial process uh, for Crosby and Cruz, you know, the court heard that they, they did play a key role in facilitating the, the murder. The Crosby indeed uh, lured uh, Keane Mulready Woods to his death. So. It's quite a strong uh, conviction that, that he received a 10-year sentence for a very serious crime. And we've seen this type of crime uh, and this type of charge being used in the past in recent times where guards have brought serious charges against those involved in uh, an active, or he played an active role uh, within a very gruesome murder. So hmm. it's a very welcome uh, conviction. Okay, and seven and a half years for Jared Cruz. They both had six months suspended, did they? Yes. So that's the last six months of their, their sentences have both been suspended as well. And you've seen as well, Michael, when you look at uh, maybe some of the cases that the, the Guard of National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau have brought before the courts where people have been convicted of the, the similar offence as well, they received similar sentences too. So it, it's not surprising that they did receive these very lengthy sentences. And uh, obviously they, they could have received quite stronger sentences, the maximum sentence in relation to facilitating a crime gang committing an offence of this nature is 15 years, so it was a very strong sentence for Crosby because of the, the role that he played uh, within this uh, criminal enterprise. Okay, uh, I think 
some people would have felt uh, that the sentence was somewhat lenient given how heinous this crime was, as uh, the judge put it. Uh, they could have got 15 years, a 10-year and a seven-and-a-half-year sentence. Uh, how much time will they spend in jail? Well, look, I was thinking about this and I was looking at the case of the, the, the killing of, of Daniel McInnesby in 2010 and his killer, Trevor Noon, was convicted um, in uh, 2017 and he received a 13-year sentence, but he's now been released. So uh, that gives an indication of the, the type of time that people are serving, you know, for very serious offences. But it all comes down to remission. It all comes down to time served. So Crosby's only 27 years of age. He's someone who has been described by Gardaí as a significant player in the Drogheda feud. You know, when you look at the success that the guards had in relation to Operation Stratus and dismantling the criminal networks that Crosby was, was part of, you know, when he comes out of jail, he'll be in his early 30s. He still will be uh, a young man. But, you know, the, the landscape will have changed by then. So even if he is released in, say, seven or, or eight years' time, you know, the, the landscape that he was once part of will have changed. New people come in and fill the void created by the vacuum created, you know, when, when his mm. gang was dismantled. So he, he won't serve the, the full 10 years and could be out in between seven or eight years. OK, and what about Jared Cruz, that seven-and-a-half-year sentence? Uh, would that be as little as three or four years? It could be four years, yeah. Where obviously, he, he wasn't a, a major player in the same uh, breath as uh, Crosby was, but... Mm. Um, he could be out again as well. He's a man. He's now 49. He would be in his 50s by the time he could say, you know, he was someone who many believe was used uh, by the criminal gangs, and uh, by, especially by Crosby and Robbie Lawler, the, the hitman who, who murdered uh, Keen Mulready Woods mm. in relation to this crime. So he, he's someone who's well down the packing order, but still did play a, a significant role in facilitating the gang and helping the gang commit this terrible crime. So who knows what lies in store for him when he comes out. And, and again, it'll be the same as Crosby. The landscape will have changed. The people that he had loyalties to are no longer uh, around. You know, Crosby's in prison. Two other significant players that he was associated with are now on the run. And uh, other people are in prison too. So mm. uh, it's just a, a question of what happens when he walks out and, and what, what he will then do with his life. OK, there were multiple crimes carried out, were there not, sometime between the 11th and uh, the 13th of uh, January in 2020 when Keane really Woods was murdered. That would be one of uh, the crimes. But then there was the dismemberment of his body uh, and indeed uh, then moving uh, those body parts uh, to different locations around the country. Yeah, multiple crimes have, have been committed here and we've seen, you know, obviously um, uh, Jed McKenna has, has also been convicted as well of assisting uh, the criminal gang. You have Crosby and, now, and then you have Cruz as well who have uh, been convicted of their parts. But the Garda investigation into this terrible crime is ongoing. We've heard Chief Superintendent uh, Alan McGovern talk recently about how uh, obviously there have been successes in relation to the Garda uh, efforts to, to bring down the, those involved in the Drogheda feud, but investigations are ongoing. They're utilising guideline legislation. That they're going after any individual who was associated with the gang in terms of uh, helping, you know, the, the mm. criminal gang commit this terrible crime against King Mulready Woods. So investigations are ongoing, and, and there could be between four or five people brought before the courts on on other charges relating to assisting the gang disposing of the the remains. So it, it is very much active. Mm. Uh, 13 people were arrested, uh, all told, I think. Yeah, 13 uh, arrests made. Obviously, a huge amount of, of, of work uh, went into this investigation, and I think the, the 
Garda utilised every uh, asset uh, at their disposal. There was great work done by the local Garda. They also had assistance from their colleagues in Dublin and, and the national units as well. So it's a huge investigation. And you know, I interviewed Superintendent Andy Waters, and, and he paid tribute uh, to the, the the men and women involved in the investigation for the tireless work that they put in. And their efforts all, all along were to get justice for Keane Mulready, Mulready Woods. They also thanked the local community and. That there has been a sea change there in Johara where, where they have caused serious disruption to those criminal gangs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading as well about the car that they used uh, to move the body parts around uh, the city in particular, uh, but that they'd gone into a petrol station in Finglas and drove off without paying and that that was an important part of the investigation and uh, getting these people before the courts. It was because obviously um, when this incident happened, the, the Gardaí in Drahada, <coughs> excuse me, but also in Dublin as well, had launched a major investigation. So CCTV was a very important component of the, the Garda investigation. And that car, uh, which was used but by those involved in this criminal enterprise to uh, dispose of some of uh, the teenagers' uh, remains, uh, formed a focal point of that investigation. It led uh, Gardaí onto other avenues as well. So. All um, avenues were explored here, um, not just in Drogheda, but also in Dublin as well. So the Gardaí put together uh, you know, a precise picture in terms of the movements of the vehicle that was used um, when the body parts were disposed in North Dublin and, and also maybe uh, people associated with various cars. And So it was, a, it was a long process for the Gardaí to engage in, but they did get there in the end, but it is still ongoing. OK, where does this leave the Drogheda feud, do you think, Stephen? Well, when you look at it um, in terms of the Drogheda feud, you look at the key players within the Drogheda feud where you have Owen Maguire, who was shot, survived that, has now been paralysed. His close associate, Cornelius Price, is very seriously ill in a hospital in the UK. You have Paul Crosby, who was described to me by a former chief superintendent, uh, Christy Magan, as a significant player in the feud. Uh, and during the feud, he would have been involved in antagonising his... his uh, his rivals. He's now in custody uh, for 10 years. And you also have um, two other individuals connected with the Crosby who are now effectively on the run because the Guardi are hoping to bring charges against them. The Guardi have disrupted uh, drug dealing in the Drogheda town, but uh, despite the successes that they've had in recent years, there hasn't been a killing for a number of years, there's still that concern that uh, just one incident could kick this thing off again so the guards can't be complacent, or complacent and will endeavour to Leave it there for the moment. Thank you as always for joining us, though. Much appreciated. Stephen Breen, crime correspondent with The Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the organisation Duris, which uh, helps uh, people who have uh, come to this country, whether they're asylum seekers or refugees uh, for that matter, is calling on politicians to uh, avoid adopting the language of the far right. Let's speak uh, to the CEO of uh, Duris, John Lannan. And a very good morning to you, John. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, explain to us what it is that's of concern. To you. Good morning. Yes, um, over the last while, um, we, we have noticed that when government politicians have been making statements in relation to uh, international protection in particular, um, 
words like illegal and being hard and firm have have started to drift into the the statements that they've made and and th- and this is somewhat worrying because the language that's drifting into the statements is um calling or could call into question the rights of some of the people who are arriving here who are seeking protection here, whether that's from war in Ukraine or it's from persecution and war in other parts of the country. So we we all have a responsibility, and this very much includes government politicians and government leaders, to ensure that the the language that's used doesn't undermine the great work that we've um, seen right across the country in general to, to welcome and to to support refugees. Okay, the Taoiseach in Brussels uh, was uh, speaking about immigration and Leo Vradker said Ireland should be fair, firm and hard on migration. Uh, was he misguided in the language that he used? Well, we, we do have um, an international protection system here already and there's a rigorous process through which every asylum seeker goes through. You know, they're, they're probably the most documented people in the country given that their their identity and a lot more details are taken when they arrive and when they make their application for, for international protection. So suggesting that we need to do more or, or indeed doing more by way of sending Gardaí to international airports to, to check papers could um, potentially undermine the, the legal and the moral obligation that we have to, to continue to um, you know, allow people to um, apply for, for asylum here. There is no doubt that there are other challenges in terms of the provision of accommodation and also in terms of the resources that are needed to process those mm. applications. But those are um, challenges that the government needs to address and the response should not be to try to restrict or deter people from coming to Ireland. I, I wonder if you'd uh, agree with James Stapleton who's in Balbriggan and he wrote a, a letter to the Irish Times following uh, the Taoiseach's remarks about fair, firm and hard and uh, suggested that instead of saying fair, firm and hard it should be fair, firm and fast. In, indeed, um, and we, we do need to see more resources allocated to the International Protection Office and to the Appeals Tribunal. Um, as people are making their applications for international protection, they do need um, to have access to, to legal support. They need to have access to, to proper interpreters um, because this is um, quite a stressful and difficult undertaking for for. That the people were coming through and making their their asylum applications. So that part has to be fair. It can be done speedily, but it shouldn't. People should not be rushed through through it. And there's a danger that that is is happening or it is happening now as people are expected to fill in questionnaires, very complex questionnaires, really quickly when they're making their applications. But beyond that, then. There needs to be um, additional resources allocated to the International Protection Office. And then we heard last week that the Appeals Tribunal, um, which um, hears the um, the, the um, appeals 
of um, negative decisions that were made by the International Protection Office actually has less resources now than it did in 2019. So that needs to be addressed. Okay, there were 161 deportations uh, so far this year. uh, And um, this is something we're told uh, if we get our news from the internet never happens. And that's quite a a significant amount of people who've uh, been returned back uh, to their country of origin, isn't it? Um, it, it is quite significant, and there's a danger that if the um, process um, of um, hearing the applications for asylum or international protection are not done fairly, if they are rushed through too quickly and people don't have the access to proper um, legal support and interpretation, that um, negative negative decisions will will be made where people do have a well-founded fear of, of, of persecution or other reasons for being um, granted refugee status. So again, mm. you know, because this um, re- return to one's home country could be, um, you know, c- c- is quite, quite a, a devastating and quite a... Um, you know, difficult and um, situation for people to, to be in and could put them at risk. So we, we do need to ensure that um, we, we avoid situations where people are being returned to mm. um, places where they could be tortured or persecuted. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that's uh, commonplace in places like Georgia uh, for uh, people who are, are gay, the LGBTQ community. No, absolutely. And, mm. and, and this is an, another um, of the... Um, phrases, I guess, that has crept into the narrative recently is about safe countries and about um, not accepting um, protection applications from countries that are on that list. Um, That is not something we can or should do, because I should say, just because a country is on the safe list doesn't Mm. mean that it's safe for everybody. And if you're LGBTQ in, in Georgia, for example, you know, if there, there, there are um, far too many cases of domestic violence and attacks on minority groups and, and migrants in South Africa, for example, there, there are other countries. In fact, all of the countries on that safe country list um, could, could be said to be, um, you know, have people who are at risk. Mm. Uh, explain to us why people are, are coming here without passports or proper documentation, if you would, because there's a, an awful lot of talk about that. And it's not just coming from the far right. Uh, we hear politicians with uh, concerns about people arriving here without their papers. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, the first thing to say on that is that the, around the International Protection Act, which um, is in line with the Refugee Convention, says that anybody who is here, either lawfully or unlawfully, has the the right to to claim international protection. But we see through our work that there are many reasons why people are not able to um, to, to have um, valid documentation um, or don't present it when when they arrive. You know, we've seen victims of human trafficking who don't have it. We've seen people whose papers have been lost or stolen, perhaps, by by smugglers. We've seen, you know, there are many people who cannot get um, passports or documentation Mm. from the regimes that they're trying to escape from. And and we also have to bear in mind that, you know, people are, um, you know, very often fearful of officials um, and the state when when they arrive here and the consequences of their engagement with them as a result of their experiences in in other countries. So, 
it, it isn't unusual or it isn't unreasonable to expect that some people who are fleeing from persecution or from torture or war may have may, may arrive here with false or with no documentation. Okay. Uh, are you concerned about uh, how these concerns, if you like, are, are being used uh, to fuel hatred? In, indeed. And, and, you know, we, we, we've seen... Um, several protests around the countries that are either organised or have been hijacked by um, far-right actors with their own agendas. Um, and you know, I think we, we need to be careful not to fuel that. Um, mm. Communities and individuals and towns have a right to information and to be told what is going on and to be given um, the opportunity, I would say, to, to be able to prepare and to for and to, to welcome refugees into their communities. Um, but um, that's something the government needs to work at. It needs to ensure that people understand what is being asked of them. Um, we have, as I said, been generally very welcoming of uh, refugees mm-hmm. and, and, and newcomers to Ireland over the decades. And we just need to ensure that we, we don't undermine that and that we continue to support the communities, the length and breadth of the country, who will, in the right conditions, ensure that there is a welcome for people fleeing war and persecution. No, and there's no doubt the vast majority of people are, are charitable and compassionate and understand uh, the situation and the complexity of the reasons why people have come here from so many different places and don't uh, have a problem with that per se and quite possibly have uh, some concerns, on, on the other hand, that they're looking for answers to. Uh, and there is criticism of, of how this is being handled. Is, is that criticism of government fair, given the scale of all of this? Well, the scale is certainly unprecedented um, since the, the war broke out in Ukraine on the 24th of February last. We've had tens of thousands of people arriving. We've had much higher numbers of people I'm coming here seeking asylum from from other countries as well. So the challenge has been quite huge. The Department of Children have responded very positively in terms of the numbers of beds that have been secured for people. Um, But their their, um, response has been generally reactive in terms of trying to provide for the numbers of people who have come in. We've now got an over-reliance on the hospitality sector so we do need to see better coordination across the board on this. We do need to see some more joined-up thinking. So um, we, we need to ensure that um, we, we have um, the, the plan in place. We're able to respond. We're able to bring new accommodation on stream. And we also need to see the government um, investing and resourcing the community engagement mm. part as well to ensure that it's not only the provision of the accommodation, it's also all of the other um, services and supports that um, enable effective integration. Okay, and the hospitality sector housing up to 14,000 people under contract, but those contracts uh, to run out next month. And the vast majority of hotels have not renewed their contracts as yet. Uh, I don't think any of them, uh, from what I've been reading, have said that they're not going to be renewing them, but they haven't renewed them as yet. Uh, And there is concern that the hotels are are just too worried to continue doing this for fear 
of protests outside because some of these protests have been very sinister and nasty. They have indeed, yes. And, and anything that gives any, any form of um, credence um, to, or, or, um, to, to that um, needs to be avoided. So we, we would like to see, you know, a nationally coordinated communications campaign now that you know, explains and covers how Ireland supports refugees, um, you know, as part of our humanitarian response to Ukraine, but also um, to uphold our obligations to, to people from, from other parts of the world as well. You know, we, we have, as we said, seen the um, gatherings of people that have been uh, quite vitriolic and and. and it's not the sort of thing that we should see or that we want to see in this country when, when um, you know, women and children um, standing at windows in accommodation centres mm. are being screamed at and are fearful for their lives. Because mm. bear in mind that the people who have come here and are seeking protection are like that have already been traumatised by horrific experiences. Yeah. And they deserve better when mm. they come to Ireland. So I think oh, absolutely. We, need I mean... to see a better, we need to see a better national effort here led by government. Yeah, well, we had it uh, the week before last in Avon, a group of women and children who had only arrived a couple of days after arriving from Ukraine, where obviously they were fleeing the war and all of the atrocities that go with that, uh, to be greeted by a bunch of bowsies shouting out, out, out. Uh, outside of uh, the accommodation that was provided to them. I was talking to somebody this morning uh, and they were telling me that there was a, a protest yesterday in Drogheda. Not that you'd notice, they said, because uh, I think about 50 people turned up. Uh, and uh, later uh, it was being claimed on the internet that Drogheda has spoken. Uh, it's just nonsense that 50 people would represent uh, the views uh, of the people of, in a town that has a population of 40,000 uh, people. Uh, but they are shouting loudly uh, and uh, there's smoke and mirrors to a, a lot of this stuff that's going on on the internet uh, and they're sensationalising things to a large extent uh, and making it seem as though this is a much bigger movement of people than it actually is. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's you know, quite a bit of um, coordinated and organised effort by the far right um, on social media and you know a, a lot of what's been claimed and a lot of what's been said in relation to Ireland is coming from outside of, of Ireland. We also see that a lot of these gatherings that claim to represent communities are either um, orchestrated or are bolstered by people from outside of the, the communities and I think that is hugely unfair to to the communities as well that are being manipulated in this way because it's perfectly reasonable for communities to, to ask questions. It's reasonable for them to get information. Um, it needs to be done in, in a reasonable way through local representatives for for example um, and and just the, the whole concept of gathering people together to shout at people whom they don't know and, and, and who haven't stopped to, to think about because, mm. you know, we, we, we understand, you know, that there are people who are disaffected, who are disenfranchised, who may be angry as a result of, you know, the the, the, the failures to, to provide services to them over the years. But 
you know, standing outside um, centres or, or gathering to, you know, um, scream obscenities about people who are fleeing from persecution and war and, and to demand they get out is... is is bringing it to a whole other, other level that's yeah. just not acceptable. Uh, and when you see the false claims to be made uh, about immigrants uh, accusing them of all sorts of crimes, uh, obviously the people accusing the immigrants of these crimes don't understand that we all have a constitutional right to a good name. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the, we, we need to have um, you know, proper community engagement. We need to ensure that as I said, resources are provided to um, you know those organisations or the family resource centres to to others who are you know engaged with and are part of the communities who have been welcoming people for and, and integrating um, you know new arrivals very effectively into communities all all around mm. the country and and we need to ensure that when debates or discussions are being held that they're being done. In, in a reasonable manner that identifies and then can find a way to delivering on whatever additional resources and services are needed okay. in the community. I think a lot of people will probably uh, take to the streets of Dublin on Saturday for what is expected to be a big rally uh, in support of immigration uh, and also making the point that there's other problems in the country like housing uh, and uh, indeed uh, that they're separate things, but that the government should be acting on both uh, in tandem, if you like. Uh, we'll hear more about that, obviously, later in the week. But, John, thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. It's always appreciated. John Lannan, CEO of Duras. Michael Reed on LMFM. As uh, the lambing season approaches, Louth County Council has issued a warning to dog owners who may not see any harm in letting their dogs roam. It could result in a hefty fine or even in a prison sentence. Let's speak uh, to the Louth County veterinarian, Garrett Shine. Good morning, Garrett, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're obviously concerned uh, that uh, there'll be a repeat of the stories that we've been hearing uh, about uh, so many of them, I suppose, particularly in the coolies in recent years in terms of sheep worrying and attacks on sheep. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the few aspects of dog control that really is becoming persistent. Um, certainly all other things are, are getting better, but that seems to be a perennial problem. Okay. Um, why, why is it a problem, do you think? Is it that people don't understand that uh, their dog can turn into such a, a vicious animal mm-hmm. because it's only a little Fido or whatever the case may be? That's it. Nearly any, any, any dog of any size is going to cause awful trouble if it gets into a field full of sheep. Um, certainly, yes, people don't realise, uh, they don't make themselves aware enough. Possibly there's more and more people, you know, the housing people living in the country with dogs, so um, maybe there's more dogs in the countryside than kept as pets. So people absolutely have to realise the potential danger there is mm-hmm. with their dog. And, and always it, keep it in at night time and always keep it under control. Okay. Is this warning for real? Uh, will people be fined? Absolutely. Any dog that is caught um, engaged in this activity, it's liable to be seized. If it's seized, it'll be taken to the pound and there will be hefty fines and Probably more worrying is, uh, is that the, the, the farmers themselves are able to take direct action. So sometimes a dog could even be shot. 
Yeah, and uh, farmers entitled to do that uh, without they asking many questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you you investigated what fourteen incidents of sheep worrying in the last year? Roughly that. Yep, yep, yep. That's, okay, it's, it's far too many, and there's more than likely been more incidents. They're the only ones that that officially came across our desk. There was probably more incidents than that. Right, and that's after the event, is it? Yeah, it is usually after right, the event okay. when the farmers either come across a field full of dead and maimed sheep. Sometimes they will apprehend the dog as well. Mm, okay. Um, have you been successful in tracking down any of these animals? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if yeah. the, mm. now, most dogs now are microchipped, so it's certainly any dog that's seized after an event like that, it will be scanned for a microchip. So that will often give the full details of the owner. Okay, but if the dog uh, isn't to be found after the attack or after worrying sheep, yeah. uh, have you been able to locate the dogs afterwards? It's been quite difficult. Um, you can so. get suspicions. Yeah. You, can, you can have a very good uh, description of a dog, but you've actually no proof. So it, it's very, very difficult um, once a dog has left the scene. Mm. Uh, and the owners uh, will argue that it wasn't their dog, I take it. Oh, absolutely. I think most owners, a lot of them keep themselves, um, you know, very uninformed on things like that. And, and, and really, people, if you do take on owning a dog, it's a big, big responsibility. And that's one of the things you must make yourself aware of the potential harm your pet dog can do. Mm. Um, do we treat that responsibility seriously enough? There's a, a review underway with two government ministers who've established a working group on how to look at roaming dogs, dogs worrying sheep, attacks on people for that matter, and indeed some of uh, the dangerous breeds. Yeah, the whole aspect of dog control is getting a root and branch review because of uh, certainly some very, very serious incidents that that, that happened um, in recent times. So, yeah, the whole thing is being reviewed and um, I would imagine the end result will be that that, that fines and penalties, etc. will be just increased and we will be possibly getting more resources to, to, to deal with this problem as well. Mm. Uh, and will that convince people uh, of the error of their ways? Because there's some people who just won't have a dog in a lead. Yeah, look, there's a lot of people new to dog ownership. I mean, we're all aware of during COVID where they met people when they were work from home or at home um, and did nothing else to do but to go out for a walk. And um, there's an awful lot of people who have got into dog ownership um, in recent times and maybe they're not experienced enough in, in owning a dog. And sort of those people we would urge to make yourself aware of all the ins and outs of owning a dog and really make yourself aware of how to be a proper responsible dog owner, owner. and really having your dog on a lead when it's out in public is the responsible thing to do. Mm. And uh, to muzzle um, the dangerous breeds. Yeah, the the sort of the dogs that fall under the restricted breeds. They mm. have to be uh, muzzled at all times when they're in public. Okay, uh, you quite often see uh, dogs uh, who are not compliant uh, or it's yes. their owners. It's always the owner, isn't it? Uh, is there any such thing as a bad dog? Um, no, just saying, not necessarily a bad dog, but the dogs that are on the, the, that list, that restricted breed, it's not that they're bad, it's that they're powerful. So any dog can bite, um, but if you get bitten by a Jack Russell, it can be a nuisance. If you get bitten by one of the dogs from the restricted breeds, that same bite can inflict major damage, and that is the problem. 
Okay. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, please uh, heed uh, what the Louth County veterinarian is saying if you are a dog owner and our thanks uh, to Garrett Shine uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Now uh, to some of uh, the comments. Uh, John Navin says uh, that there's some concern about cameras in Leinster House. Indeed, uh, Green Party TD uh, Patrick Costello has asked uh, the government to look at the contract uh, with a, a Chinese firm uh, because uh, they've uh, been uh, taking cameras out of uh, the European Parliament in Denmark and uh, in Westminster, for, for uh, example, because there's concerns uh, about spying by uh, these cameras or through these cameras. Uh, but uh, John says it's beyond hilarious. What is there? <coughs> excuse me. What is there to interest any spy network? Looking at grown men and women sniping at each other, Martin and Leo and hello Mary Lou talking dribble. Plus sometimes members making speeches to an almost empty house. If I was a Chinese spy looking at our Lancer House Warriors in action, I'd think I was watching a bad comedy show, probably since uh, the place is packed with clowns masquerading as people with brains. The Chinese, uh, if they are spying uh, on our politicians, must be busting themselves laughing at what's going on. That is supposed to pass for governing our country and failing miserably, says John and Navin. Uh, I take it that's uh, very tongue-in-cheek, John. Uh, but thanks uh, for your message um, and indeed your total cynicism for that matter. Uh, Breda and Navin says genuine refugees are welcome. Good to hear that, Breda, uh, because uh, let's not forget that all people seeking asylum here in this country are here legally. They go through a process and at the end of that process it's decided whether they can stay or whether they can go or should go or be deported and as we were hearing this morning many of them are being deported all of the time but the challenge is massive. Let's uh, hear about how many people are coming to this country on a daily basis from Ukraine alone? Those fleeing Ukraine continued to arrive in Ireland. Last week, there was an average of 124 arrivals daily. And it does remain challenging to provide shelter to all those in need. And this is very much the focus across government. My department is in negotiations as contracts expire with all existing providers to ascertain whether they will continue to provide accommodation for Ukrainians. No provider has definitively indicated ceasing services under the new contracts the department are offering. We will keep this under review and continue to procure service and self-catering accommodation where we can. Through though negotiations are ongoing, it is accepted that some providers will choose to revert to the tourism offering shortly, and we are preparing for this. All right. Well, that's uh, the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, talking uh, about those contracts running out uh, for housing immigrants coming into this country, and so many of them. 124 people a day from Ukraine alone uh, and of course uh, add each daily number together and you end up with thousands of people seeking international protection. To provide some context to this figure, the average annual number of people arriving in Ireland seeking international protection from 2017 to 2019 was 3,500. The arrival numbers are at an all-time high with 15,000 people arriving in 2022. 
In the first month of 2023, more than 1,200 new international protection applicants have sought accommodation from the state. The Department has made every possible effort to secure accommodation and has sought support from the widest possible range of organisations to provide accommodation to international protection applicants. That's uh, the Minister, Rodrigo Gorman, talking uh, about the scale of uh, this problem. And, of course, uh, there's uh, the very mean-spirited evil, if you like, uh, people who are spreading rumours uh, about immigrants, false rumours, false information, false accusations uh, and that's leading to a, a number of protests. Let's hear what Sinn Féin TD Rory Murku had to say about that. There's a huge level of disinformation and you know, what you can only call at best uh, Obviously, negative actors or the far right, call them what you will, and, and a huge amount of it is just you can't call it anything more than idiocy, but dangerous idiocy. Um, and we need to make sure that there is absolutely no space in relation to, to them. Uh, Indeed, dangerous idiocy. Who would want to be associated with that? That's Rory Murakou speaking in the doll. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about a four-day working week on a Monday morning. It's probably something you can only dream about. Of course, it would result in a three-day weekend. So let's speak to Margaret Cox, who's written a book about a three-day weekend. She's a recruitment specialist and director of the recruitment company Ice Jobs. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Your employees get a, a bank holiday, if you like, every weekend uh, and uh, you've introduced this uh, a number of years ago going back to 2019 I think That's right we'll be celebrating four years um, in July of this year we started off with a six month trial to test it because in fairness we were the first in Ireland there was nobody else to talk to and um, we were kind of um, a little bit worried we weren't sure that it would work but we really wanted to make it happen and um, and we did and almost four years on it's been a tremendous success so much so that we want to share those thoughts and, and ideas with everybody it's, it's a movement that's picking up around the world started mm. perhaps in New Zealand is coming up here we are seeing trials in Ireland last year very successful with results announced in November and then it's been trialled in the UK in the USA in various countries in Europe so certainly there's a movement there that I suppose is asking businesses and business owners and shareholders to stop for a second and to think do we need to follow the five day model or if it was possible as in our case in ICE Group to get your work done in four days could you get the fifth day off and get the same wage? And that's what the four-day concept, uh, working week concept is about. It's and your, your staff work, work longer hours, though, don't they, on the four days that they do work? Slightly longer hours. Mm. They don't work a full week. It's not compressed hours. Compressed hours is where you do your normal week in four days. We have reduced the working week, so they work slightly longer um, in the four days in order to get the work done, but everybody has either a Monday or a Friday off. Mm. So uh, it's uh, different uh, for some people than others. You either get the Friday or the Monday. So, yeah, so, so, in our so, business, because we need so to be open for five days. Sure, so your business is operational five days a week. Yes, that's right. That's okay. Right. All right. Uh, and what has that done to your business? Um, well, look, first of all, and this is the thing we're most proud of, our wellness scores which is, you know, we do that with surveys and people's uh, employee surveys and engagement, is 33% higher than it was when we started the four-day week. And that's a tremendously positive, mm. I suppose, statistic. It means people are happier at work. They're more focused at work. They take time, less time off because of illness and fairness. Our absent 
teaism, which is the same one day absenteeisms, um, that is completely reduced. We are very rarely would have somebody off for one day just because they have a headache or they're tired or whatever. Okay. Mm. Um, we're seeing a huge reduction now. We're seeing increased um, employee retention. So it's an employee retention tool. And the big thing from a business point of view is that our productivity increased after we moved to the four days. So we get more productivity out of four days than we did out of five. Well, I was just going to ask you uh, if uh, your staff are happier, does it translate into better productivity? Because a happier workforce is undoubtedly going to be a more productive workforce. And that's the key thing that mm. people and businesses need to accept and to 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 expect and to wonder about. Um, and it has 27% increase in productivity as we measured it after the trial and moved in. Um, and, uh, you know, so people are happier at work. They are getting more done. We're more focused. Our, our tagline is focused, energised and happy. So when you come into work, you're focused on what you're doing. You're energised because you've had a three-day weekend and you have that every weekend. And you're happy because you know at the end of the week, you're starting into another three-day weekend again. Mm, Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it sounds quite good, but it's the argument I'd expect from a trade unionist rather than an employer. Well, here you go. Um, I mean, any employer who wants to look at their business and say, could we make this happen? Would we have a more fulfilled and happier workforce? Would I get better productivity? And thinks it's not worth at least considering needs to, you know, look at how they're running their business. Because it's good for the employer too. I mean, the managers get the four-day week as well as the employees. The clients have a happier um, support and customer service base because they're getting better customer service. And the employees, their families, their communities are all benefiting. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So um, it really makes a difference. We've had employees who've gone back to college to do their masters. We've had employees who have volunteered in their own community. And um, there are people who've improved their golf. In fairness, you know, get at that extra day on the golf course. So it's not all, um, you know, education and 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 volunteering, but just the stress levels on on normal weekly 
I suppose, household management and chores. Having that extra day means that you have the weekend to enjoy, to spend with your family, whether that's your parents, your sisters, your brothers or your children, or indeed just yourself. It's just, it makes a huge difference is all I can say. Can you remember when you told your staff uh, you were going to introduce a four-day week? I'd say they were very worried to begin with. (laughs) It was very, very funny. We made, we called everybody together for an all, an all site meeting. People from our Limerick office and our uh, Sligo office all came to go in. I suppose people were worried. And we hadn't really thought that they'd be worried when we'd be having this meeting, but they were. And then we made the announcement and it was made by my co-director, Fela MacDonald, who was all about, you know, productivity, profitability. He's an engineer. So he's all about the logistics and how mm. we successful. And then Fela announced, so, what we've decided in our next uh, four-year strategic plan is to trial a four-day week with the hope to move it to it. And we had 60 seconds of absolute silence. <laughs> it was like candid camera. Yeah. People thought it was a joke. Jaws dropped. Really, yeah. jaws dropped. Yeah. And the lucky thing is we were going into lunch just after the announcement so they got a chance to talk about it and come back in. Um, and then ask the questions where we lose pay is you know is there issues about redundancy is the business not doing very well so we were able to alleviate all those fears mm-hmm. but anybody who does it now and um, one of the changes that we've made over the past after the trial and into the first year was when you start with us you start in a five day week and then once you've passed probation you move on to the four day week so it's a benefit that you're working towards in terms okay. of how you work in the organisation and the effort that people make you know, to get themselves set up for success as we move from probation into the four-day week, mm. is um, it's a testament to how good the system works. Very good. What about holidays? Look, holidays, yeah, we, you have four weeks holidays every mm. year, the same, it's four weeks of four days, but your fifth day is off anyway, so it's the exact same thing. Um, and the only other change is in a bank holiday weekend because it's about productivity connected with the same pay. Everybody works four days on a bank holiday weekend. So you still have your bank holiday, but you don't have a three-day weekend. Okay. Did anyone say no? Anybody object to the idea? Well, nobody objected to the idea. There were one or two people who felt it wouldn't work for them because of um, maybe travelling to work if they were getting public transport or, or whatever. But in the end of the day, anybody who's who was with us then and who's still with us and anybody who joins us now are all happily moving on to the four-day week. We have some part-time people who didn't move on to the four-day week because they were working part-time anyway and they weren't working a full week. Okay. Uh, and um, it's uh, something for people to mull over uh, uh, I think employees will buy into the argument quicker than employers, which is why uh, you're uh, coming from it from such an interesting perspective, I would think. And people can uh, read more in uh, the three-day weekend. Margaret, thank you indeed for the food for thought you've given us all today. Food for thought. Thanks indeed. for Thank you. To you. you too. Margaret Cox, recruitment specialist and director of the recruitment company Ice Jobs, uh, who's uh, written a, a book about the three-day weekend. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the cost of renting has increased again and loud market rents were on average 11.1% higher in the final three months of 2022 than they were a year previously. Over the same period in County Mead, market rents were on average 11.9% higher. Let's speak to the author of the report for daft.ie. That's Ronan 
Ronan Lyons, who's an associate professor of economics at Trinity College in Dublin. A very good morning to you, Ronan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, the three monthly scratching of the head as to how long this can go on for. Uh, but uh, it's going to continue, is it not, you say, unless we build somewhere between 200 and 250,000 houses? Yeah, and that, that figure is based on the way one might calculate that kind of figure is you look at how many homes come onto the rental market over a particular period, say um, over the course of a month or, or three months. And then you look back over the last 20 years and, and over the last 20 years, when you look at the national rental market, when has it been in balance? When have rents been rising? When have rents been falling? And you do that exercise and you come out with some pretty startling numbers about how few rental properties are coming onto the market at the moment relative to what we what we need. Um, so uh, just to give the case of the greater Dublin area, mm. uh, generally the Dublin area needs something like between 1,000 and 1,200 homes coming onto the rental market every week uh, in order for the market to be in balance. What it's currently seeing is about 300. So how do you plug that gap? Well, you need an extra, say, 700 to get you up to 1,000 homes a week, but you need that for however many weeks the average tenancy lasts, which could be a couple of years. And that's how you do that kind of exercise to figure out how many homes were short. And then when you scale it up for the country as a whole, Obviously, it's not, a, it's not a certain exercise, but you can put a kind of a rough number on it, and it's around 200 to 250,000 rental homes. We're clearly not going to get that in the next year or two, but it does have to be the kind of scale of the goal that, that mm. national policymakers should have, as in when we're t- looking and trying to design a healthy housing system, in addition to significantly more homes for owner-occupiers and significantly more social housing, we'll also need significantly more homes for, for renters. Mm. And you're concerned as well uh, that we've stopped that scheme, the build to rent scheme. Yeah, so it, it, Dublin City Council and and uh, Dunleary Rest Down have started looking askance at proposals um, for new rental homes. Uh, believe it or not, um, it, despite everything we're just talking about, mm-hmm. um, they're they're looking at proposals. Like, well, is it not the case that we're seeing too many of these? Um, which to me says I don't think they're doing this out of malevolence. I think they're doing it simply out of not understanding the scale of the the problem, the scale of the the shortage of rental accommodation, and in that sense. The national government having introduced the build to rent scheme was a clear signal from the top, from central government, that this was something the country needs. And by taking that away, by saying, well, we don't need the build to rent anymore, or it wasn't working the way we wanted it to, um, I accept it, it may be the case that you think it isn't working the way you wanted to, then you fix it. You don't get rid of it. But by getting rid of it, they've sort of encouraged the local authorities to view the bill to rent applications that are working their way through the system with a, a more scepticism, which unfortunately is, is the last thing we the last thing we need in this country is more scepticism to, to new rental stock. Mm. 250,000 homes, though, it is incredible. Uh, you believe it could be done in a decade or so, but does that mean that for the next 10 years we're going to see people pay these exorbitant rates of rent over 2,000 in Dublin, 1,700 in Meath, 1,500 in Louth? Uh, is that the future? Well, certainly there's no 
there's no desirable quick win in terms of bringing rents down. As in, you could certainly have some sort of economic cataclysm where incomes go down and then all of a sudden people aren't able to pay the rents that they are currently. But that's not really a solution to the, the, the housing shortages. If, if incomes hold up, if, if the economy continues to do well, if Ireland is still a country where both Irish people abroad and others want to come to, um, to, to live their lives, then uh, we are going to see, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see any um, fall in rents anytime soon. And as you say, this is a, it's a 10-year-plus project, and it's not, it shouldn't just be about market rental homes, but it has to include market rental homes. Sweden had something similar in the 1960s and early 1970s. They had what was called their the Million Homes Project, and they needed to build a million homes, and they tried to do it in the space of a decade. That's the kind of scale and vision that we, we, we need in this country. Mm. Um, we need to kickstart a construction sector that has, I mean, it did, in fairness, it did build nearly 30,000 homes last yeah. year but every expectation this year is that it would, that will go down to about maybe 25,000 this year we need to go in the other direction <clears throat> excuse me up to between say 45 and 60,000 homes per and, year sorry, across those three groups sorry did, did they actually build a million homes uh, in Sweden over a decade I don't have a final figure, but I, I do know thought, the scheme is viewed as a success. I just thought I it was fiercely interesting. I mean, you know, the, yeah. because that, that in itself causes challenges. Because I mean, one of the problems is we don't have the construction workers. I think, uh, and if construction workers are to come uh, to this country to build homes, they'll need somewhere to live. Compounding the problem. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's um, in, in the Swedish case. Uh, they the, the mission was regarded as, as a success in part because they were able to standardize so much so there's a particular kind of home now that if you go into it you know oh yeah this was one of the homes that was built during that during that decade and now and you may say okay well that's a bit monotonous but in in times of i mean this is a social this is a huge social challenge now for the country and mm. um, it was already emerging in 2016-17 and people were talking about as you and i talked about it then but we're now five years, six years, seven years down, and things have not got better. We've continued to underbuild. Um, so we need to think about solutions. And as you say, in terms of the capacity of the sector, in general, the capacity of the sector has responded well over the last 10 years. If you think about the professional construction sector in 2013, it was building almost no new estate homes. It was building basically zero apartments, adding no new offices or hotels or student accommodation. Yeah. And over the course of the next six or seven years, it was able to add capacity in all of those sectors. So where there's viability, as in where they're able to recover their costs, you will see the capacity follow. So I'm, I'm less, a little bit less worried about it. You are right, obviously, construction workers coming to the country have to live somewhere. Um, but in general, they have found ways um, over the, the sector, has found ways over the last few years to make it work. And we have that figure from last year. It was able to build 30,000 homes um, last year. We need to just see that, unfortunately, repeated. I don't say unfortunately, mm. but unfortunately, it looks like we're going to go down um, to maybe 20 to 25,000 this year rather than up because yeah. of the viability challenges. Okay, and uh, take a lot of the people who are renting. Uh, apart from having to pay out huge money every month, they're trying to save uh, to buy their own homes. Yeah, so... There's, there's different renting demographics. There are people who are renting because it's 
that's the, the stage in their lives. They're what you might call younger adult cohorts, and we have a significantly larger younger adult cohort now than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. So that, that itself just creates rental demand. We also have people renting because the country hasn't been building enough social housing over the last 20 or 30 years. And, of course, that will be solved by building more social housing, in particular the, the LDA, the, the Land Development Agency, which is the new kind of state um, housing um, organisation. Um, but you have people who would have bought a home earlier if buying a home were easier. Now, the, 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 the most likely way for people stuck in that situation who are paying high rents and who want to save for deposits, the most likely way for them to buy their own home is to buy a new build because of the help to buy scheme and because of the new shared equity scheme. Mm. Those do a lot to allay the fears of someone who can't save for deposits because if they're paying income tax, the income tax is becoming their deposits. But they do sort of lock the, that group out of the second-hand market. Not everyone wants a new-built home, um, and unfortunately it's, it's not possible at the moment, given the shortage of housing, for, for people to be able to afford in the second-hand market. So um, there's, there's, there's challenges across owner-occupied or people who want to own um, and social housing and market rental and, and therefore we need a kind of a three-pronged approach um, in, in solving this. All right, well the challenges as uh, you portray them are staggering it has to be said uh, and if we need 250,000 new homes over the course of uh, the next decade do we need to build all 250,000 or uh, is there a way of providing housing to people through the uh, existing stock uh, because there's so many vacant properties around the country there there are vacant homes around the country but when you when you start to dig into the numbers um uh, the vacancy rate, which is what an international analyst would look at, like what percentage of the housing is vacant, is actually very low in places of, of, of high demand. I'm not saying it can't be improved, but, but realistically there are probably um, maybe twenty to 30,000 properties that could be brought back into use uh, quickly. By all means, let's do that, but let's not confuse that for solving the problem um, it is we, we can definitely do more with vacant homes but it is probably giving us a half a year to a year's worth of, of new supply and then we will still need to, to build lots more um, so it's, it's, it's something we can do um, but I don't think we should put all our hopes just on, on bringing vacant homes back into use. Okay, I um, doubt you have any data on uh, the amount of people who are, are leaving uh, the country, but I, I think uh, the last time we had forced emigration was in the 1980s because there weren't jobs. Uh, would you be fearful that people are, are leaving the country because they can't afford to house themselves? Well, I do think it's it's um, sort of darkly fascinating when you look at the... Uh, most countries, when you have anti-immigration protests, they're anti-immigration protests, and one of the catch lines might be something like, they come over here and they take our jobs, um, whereas in Ireland, the tone tends to be quite different. It's, they're coming over here and they're, they're taking the housing. And I think that points to the unique situation that Ireland is in, and that most most countries, including Ireland historically, were not able to, they didn't have enough um, economic activity to sustain the people who wanted to live there. And there weren't enough jobs, in other words. Um, we have um, a, a very successful economy in terms of job creation. Um, certainly there's a wobble in one of the sectors, the online services sector, um, over the last six months. Let's see how that pans out. But by and large, unemployment is very low. Um, Employment is very high. 
incomes are growing, although at the moment um, prices are, are growing faster. Um, but it is the housing issue that um, that, that has emerged as a, as a pressure point for, for society. And that says that we are probably, yeah, we are probably losing people, even though there's net immigration um, and include net immigration of Irish. Um, more Irish returned um, last year than, than left. But what would it be if housing weren't an issue? That's, mm. that's, the, that's the question we need to answer. Yeah. Go to Berlin, rent somewhere for 500 and save some money to come home and maybe buy a house. Uh, you can understand why people would be thinking that way. Thank you indeed, as always, Ronan, for joining us on the programme. Much appreciated. Uh, that's uh, Ronan Lyons, who is the author of uh, the reports for daft.ie. He's also an Associate Professor of Economics at Trinity College in Dublin. Now, some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning, uh, we'd make it in touch with us, who says he's met people with devil dogs off the lead. Uh, sometimes two dogs off the lead. He says, I also saw a, a lad walking seven dogs around Kells the other day and no muzzles on them. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Mick. Uh, there's uh, Deirdre then in touch who says uh, that people will have to put their dogs on a lead uh, or they shouldn't be allowed to have dogs. Certainly not running wild like that. She says, I know all about it. Years ago, I got attacked by a dog uh, and I, I was out walking only for the hospital in Navan. Uh, I don't know what would have happened because uh, they saved me. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, another text from John who says, well, if uh, people are, are allowing their dogs uh, to roam that way, not on the lead, the dog should be confiscated off them uh, immediately. Uh, another text that comes to us uh, from Fran uh, about housing in this country uh, and indeed uh, some of uh, those protests that have been taking place, uh, who wonders uh, what would happen if a group of builders came over to build the 250,000 houses that Ronan Lyons is talking about. Uh, Let's say they came from Poland and were to solve one of the biggest social crises in this country by providing the housing that we all need so badly. If they were to be housed in one location, like an apartment block, would there be people outside wondering if they'd been vetted uh, and why there were so many men in one building? (laughs) See where he's coming now. Uh, And also what type of criminal backgrounds they have. Interesting text. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. If you haven't been in touch and you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. That's 041-983-2000. You can give us a, a call. Ring us on that Number. You can text us on 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Same number if you want to WhatsApp your text, 0861800658, or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about the Russians. Uh, I think everybody has feelings about the Russians and their view on world affairs at the moment. And here's a thought for you. The Russians uh, may want peacekeeping to stop in certain locations around the world. They may want that peacekeeping uh, to discontinue. And they have the wherewithal to stop a genuine peacekeeping mission. This is according to the Tonishta, Michal Martin, who was speaking in Washington on Thursday. And he said, you have a situation now where a country like Russia could essentially veto our participation in a worthy and meritorious peacekeeping operation. 
Hard to believe, isn't it? Michal Martin said, we have to reflect on, uh, on this and it's something that he would be concerned about. Let's uh, speak uh, to Jim Roach, who's PRO with uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement and co-founder of uh, the Irish Neutrality League. Good morning to you, Jim, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Would you be concerned about the Russians stopping Irish peacekeeping missions? Good morning, Michael. Look, I'm... Uh, You're know. totally dismayed I, at my introduction, aren't you? Of, yeah. I love his use of language. Yes. Meritorious word. I, I, I had to look it up. Just, um, I, I, can, I can hear the really downbeat um, reception to my introduction there, which, uh, of course, uh, was using the Tonish's words. You're not happy with what Michael Martin was saying, obviously. Well, look, I mean, if you take, like, the UN Security Council is a problematic body. Uh, we, we know that, and we, we've said it. it, it the, the five permanent members, any of them can, can veto anything. They can veto any resolution. So in um, in theory, I mean, he has a point, you know, but and, but it, it's the first time he's saying this. He's never he's never mentioned this before in the, the way that the US vetoes any resolution, for example, that's passed uh, in somehow support of the Palestinian people, say, and other other groups. You know, that's been passed and it's vetoed by the US. And if you look at the history of vetoing in the UN Security Council, uh, I would think that I, I, I'm, I'm not, I actually haven't got in and looked at it, but I would think that the, the US scores quite badly as well, you know. So, so look, it's this, I, I feel this is all, I mean, his comments at the weekend were about, you know, really about reflecting on the triple lock. Mm. Explain, to, explain to us what the triple lock I, is, I, because I this... Very, the, very this, briefly. Yeah, there. this is where the Russian and involvement comes of, in. Yeah. yeah. Part of the Lisbon Treaty, the first Lisbon Treaty was rejected by the people of Ireland, and then the government went back and negotiated and brought back in, in this thing called the triple lock, which means that our, our Ireland, uh, Irish peacekeepers cannot be sent into any uh, uh, zone in the world mm. without approval by three three groups. One is uh, a, a UN resolution that that is then ratified by the UN Security Council, and then the other is that the the, the government has to, uh, then the cabinet has mm. to approve it, and then the doll has to approve it. So it's quite a strong uh, law. Um, Lock, if you like, on yeah. our neutrality. It was uh, enough to convince people to vote in favour of the Lisbon it Treaty. It was indeed, yeah, yes. Because there was concern Absolutely, that yeah. Irish troops would be deployed uh, to places uh, and we could forego our neutrality. Exactly, exactly. So uh, it, it is cherished, as neutrality is cherished, as the, the, the polls have shown, three different polls have shown, you know, more than two-thirds or more than two-thirds of Irish people still value neutrality and want Ireland to remain neutral. So, so and... It's our, our our belief that this is an attempt by Michael Martin and others within the government to get rid of the triple lock, to weaken it. He's using the, the horrible uh, war in Ukraine, the horrible uh, invasion by Russia to to justify this. So, uh, but I don't think he'd get away with it. I mean, I don't think that I don't think the doll would vote for it. I think there are people even within his own party who value neutrality and value the triple lock. So. Uh, it's just words at the moment, but it, it does demonstrate what they're thinking, which mm. is very worrying. And it, it's also very sad because, as I said to you last time, you know, where is this war going? It's it's just shocking, awful madness, utter madness, militaristic madness. Mm. And here, Ireland would have a chance, along with, say, Austria and Switzerland and Malta, 
to stand up as neutral countries and and possibly off, uh, act as peace brokers. Mm. But instead, you have Michael Martin coming out with this stuff, saying, and essentially, as I said before, riding with the NATO pack, you know, uh, it's very, very worrying. Well, it's a very good argument that he's making, uh, because he's saying we have a proud tradition of peacekeeping, uh, and that uh, the Russians could interfere with that. They could actually stop Irish troops from going on peacekeeping missions, and we can't allow that. I, I think that there'd be a lot of support for that point of view. Well, yeah, but it's only speculation. I mean, if if you went back to the Minsk agreement, say, or you went back to the, the agreement that was on the table between the Russians and the Ukrainians in March, which was brokered by Turkey, uh, and part of that was for uh, demilitarised Ukraine, no foreign militaries in in Ukraine, that would include the Russians, uh, that that uh, Ukraine would be a neutral state, that it could join the EU, that there'd be some kind of autonomy for the Luhansk, Donetsk region, and that Crimea would be looked at over a 15-year period. I mean, that's that was an awful, it's an awful lot better. And, and, and that there may be some foreign peacekeeping troops in perhaps as part of that. Uh, but like that was being discussed, you know, and I, I told you before, I think it was scoopered by Johnson uh, uh, heading off in April several different times to tell the tell Zelensky and co that we'll give you all the weapons you want. Don't agree anything, you know, and this is where we are now. So I, I think anything is better than what's happening now. And I, I, I think it's a, a speculation on Neil Martin. He, yeah. he, he's only looking at it from one perspective, which is which is the perspective of NATO, actually. Uh, and we shouldn't, like, as I said, Ireland should be standing firm, expressing its positive neutrality to try and bring a peaceful resolution here to this awful, awful war. And what about uh, this triple lock, uh, which needs that mandate from the United Nations, approval from the Cabinet and the doll before Irish troops are deployed on peacekeeping? Um, uh, and if the argument is right that the Russians could stop uh, peacekeeping missions uh, and people decide to uh, forget about the triple lock, I think I presume that would need a referendum apart from anything else. But if the triple lock was to be locked, what would that mean? Would it mean that Irish troops could go to war, let alone peacekeeping missions? That, well, that would be the concern, you know, uh, and I, I, I don't. Sorry, Michael. I actually don't fully get get where you're coming from there with with that. Um, that we could involve. Could it for me? I'm sorry that the Irish troops could um, be uh, involved in a conflict. Uh, I mean, if there was a NATO mission now uh, with Ukraine, uh, that Irish troops could be part of that mission. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, that's the concern, I suppose. If 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 the if the triple lock was. Um, not held in place. Uh, there, there is a danger that I, that you know that will try and send Irish troops to uh, to Ukraine, or at least to, to train mm. U- Ukrainian troops, as we've talked about in the past. So that was hinted at already, you know. And again, this is going back. Like Simon Coveney was saying the same thing back in June. That um, again condemning the Russians. So it is. It's 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 a line within both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, Certain sections of these organisations, these parties that uh, I believe want want to bring us in into military alignment with with NATO, if not join NATO. So, okay, and um, I, I think it's really really dangerous. We we should be, as I said, 
expressing our neutrality and, and calling for diplomacy and peace talks to bring this awful conflict to an end. Last time I, I spoke to you, Jim, uh, you were very concerned uh, about how countries were to supply Ukraine with uh, these tanks. Yes, um, yeah. We're all letting on, we're familiar with now. Um, but big weapons of war. Uh, and I was asking you, what about fighter jets at the time? And you said, God forbid, fighter jets, are, they're on the way now from the UK and it looks like others will follow suit. I know, I know. It's really, I mean, it's really up in the empty, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, as I said to you then, this is more and more now fully scaled, fully scaled up proxy war between Russia, Russian Federation and NATO countries. And uh, it's uh, absolutely shocking. Mm. And we get closer and closer and closer to open confrontation between NATO and Russia and you know the possibilities of nuclear war, even mm. so, and it's very interesting. I, I, I do want to quote someone. Uh, I read in the Guardian yesterday, BBC veteran uh, reporter Stephen Rosenberg. In, in he's the Russian reporter. He's based in Moscow, and the the Guardian asked him a very two very interesting questions. One says, "What was the level of support for the war within Russia?" And he said, "Tiny minority supports the war in Putin." A tiny minority against it. And then in the middle, you have the majority who are, he says, utterly confused by what's happening, partly because of stream of propaganda. The other question he was asked was, have the sanctions had any tangible effect on on the day-to-day life in Russia? And he says, that, okay, there's some things that, that the shops are still packed, there's some things like Western Coca-Cola can't pick up. But he says, I quote, for the majority of Russians across the country, they don't see a huge effect from sanctions. So all that all now that's from the BBC correspondent mm. in Russia. All all that we've been hearing uh, all the time is that this is the way it goes. Sanctions send military uh, to the Ukrainians and sanctions against Russia is working. In fact, it doesn't sound like they are working. And what they are doing is of course having an impact on ordinary people in uh, Western countries and as we know in poor countries of the world where the desperation for grain and stuff. So mm. So, look, this is just going nowhere. And the only ones benefiting right. from this are Putin and his people around him and the, the Western, the, the industrial military complex in the West, if you like. They're laughing all the way to the bank. OK, well, uh, we're uh, possibly uh, going somewhere uh, that uh, you don't want to think about uh, because uh, the long-range missiles and the fighter jets, it seems, are going to be supplied to Ukraine. Then you've uh, President Zelensky in Brussels last week saying that Ukraine is a European country, that the European Union is a coalition against Russia and that the European Union is winning the war over Russia. There were comments, uh, I think, that uh, he uh, made in the European Parliament but was addressing to Moscow and indeed taunting Moscow. Um, Would you be fearful that there might be a a Russian attack outside of Ukraine? Uh... I would indeed, uh, and again, there have been attacks with inside Russia on um, by both Ukrainian forces, and of course, there's been the attack on the Nord Stream two uh, pipeline, which you know no hasn't been investigated properly. I know Seymour Hersh came out last week, the veteran uh, investigative U.S. journalist, claiming that it was done by the U.S. and Norway, and again, it's all been pushed and, and belittled by. The mainstream media. So, uh, yeah, that, that's always a, a danger. I, I, um, I think it's, it's. I mean, who knows? You know, like that's the concern. Like, like the more the West gets involved here, uh, 
that that absolutely is 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 a danger, and he has threatened, like Putin has threatened before attacking uh, lines of armaments, you know, going going to Ukraine. So mm. um, uh, it's just expanding all the time. It's escalating, expanding, and um, we Ireland should be calling for de-escalation and for diplomacy and peace talks to okay. bring this to an end. I know Councillor Pio Smith uh, doesn't agree with you. Pio is a Labour Party councillor in Louth and he's been in touch saying that the world has changed since the Russian invasion. Some people view it pre-2022 and others view it post-2022. The former are wrong. Time for Ireland to join a military alliance, he says. I think he's a lone voice um, uh, within the military and within Ireland. I mean, again, if you look at the polls, uh, and I know polls can change, people can change their minds, but uh, what's very important is is that we start to hear the truth about what's happening, and we're not here like we we are like, like the mainstream media. I'm not talking about you, Michael. The mainstream media are portraying this in a particular way, and Western governments are portraying it in a particular way. And that's not to say we 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 totally what Vladimir Putin has done. We've made that clear from the start. But so uh, I, I think it has changed to agree. We need to bring it back. We need to bring it back and bring some sense into this and say this is not good. It's not good for the people of Ukraine. It's not good for the young Russian conscripts. And it's not good ultimately for the people of Europe. It's getting very, very close to, as you say, you know, a possible confrontation between Russia and some Western countries. Yeah, OK. So, well, we're, what, 11 days out uh, from uh, the first anniversary. Just to say on that, I mean, yeah, we'll be yeah. joining the, the Solidarity March next Saturday, Ireland for All, Stronger Together at yeah. home. It's from uh, to Parnell Square with our, with our IWM banner saying, uh, you know, stop this proxy war now. OK. Jim, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people uh, who will be marching on Saturday uh, for that matter. Thank you indeed for joining us. That's Jim Roach, PRO with the Irish Anti-War Movement and co-founder of the Irish Neutrality League. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Eric who's been in touch with us saying uh, that all dogs should be allowed into their owner's house. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Eric. I, I presume you feel that they shouldn't be allowed out of the house if that's uh, the case. Uh, somebody else in touch saying when there's war between East and West, Poland ends up under the Russian boot. And I imagine there's a lot of concern indeed in Poland and some of the neighbouring countries for that matter. Uh, another text was uh, from somebody uh, who has uh, been in touch about the Navan rail line saying that it is a pipe dream um, and uh, a, <laughs> a watch kettle never boils. Uh, the time frame that has been given for uh, the arrival of uh, the train line uh, is uh, beyond ridiculous. Uh, and as you know, uh, the Mead on Track Group are holding a, a public meeting uh, this evening uh, about this. Uh, they're very concerned, uh, obviously, uh, about uh, not just uh, the time frame uh, and that it won't be uh, delivered until 2036, but also uh, that 
that is the a commitment uh, by all uh, accounts, but funding hasn't been provided uh, to in line with that. This meeting is taking place tonight at 8 o'clock in the Newgrange Hotel. Uh, we're to be joined, I think, in the next few minutes uh, by Patrick Tobin, uh, who's the chair of that meeting. Uh, but I'm being told uh, there's a, a problem making that connection right now. So uh, we'll move to other matters. Now, if you'd been listening to us uh, this morning, you'd have heard some of uh, the statements about immigration that were being made in uh, the Dáil last week uh, by the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman. Um, the Dáil uh, was once again dominated uh, by this issue. Uh, and we'll hear uh, some uh, of uh, the interaction now. This is, first of all, People Before Prophet T.D. McBarry. Go online, open a newspaper, turn on the radio. You cannot do any of these these days without reading or hearing about the far right. They have come to prominence through their organisational support for anti-refugee protests. But who are they? The largest such party is the National Party. It is described by the far right observatory as being anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ+, and white nationalist. Its leader has attended meetings of European neo-Nazi groups. The observatory lists about a dozen such groups and remarks that many have adopted the great replacement conspiracy theory, which argues that white populations are being deliberately displaced from their homelands as part of a plot often blamed on Jews or globalists. Hardcore racists in some of these groups have tried to promote the racist myth of a link between black and brown men and the incidence of gender-based violence. These groups have never displayed any concern for the victims of gender-based violence before and are simply trying to exploit the issue for racist ends. Now, an opinion piece by Justine McCarthy in last week's Irish Times titled Government Needs to Acknowledge Its Role in Creating Anti-Migrant Tinderbox said the following. The spurning of economic immigrants arriving on Irish shores while seeking special status for Ireland's own immigrants abroad is the sort of do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do double standard that gives succor to xenophobic agitators warming their ideology of hate into the public mindset. That's McBarry speaking in the doll last week. Let's uh, go to the phones now. Ain't to leader and TD for Meath West, Peter Tobin, uh, is on the line. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Meath on track this meeting this evening at 8 o'clock in the New Grange. is there much prospect of expediting uh, the Navan Rail Line? Yeah, thanks for, uh, for for having me on. This is a major project for County Meath. Um, the majority of people of Meath left the county to go to work uh, today, and that happens in no other local authority area in the country. Uh, we have the biggest commuting population in the country. Uh, we have some of the furthest distance to commute, and people are spending three hours a day currently commuting back and forth uh, to work. That has a major cost in terms of people's family life and the financials in dealing with tolls, diesels, uh, their cars, etc. And despite all of that, Navin is the largest town in the country without a rail line. So I, I think it's very, very clear that there is a real need for this. Thankfully, we've managed to push the government over the line in terms of committing to this. But there are two major problems, and that's one is the length of time it's going to take for it to happen. Uh, the government is talking that it may happen uh, by 2036. 
or even 2042, uh, which is an incredible t- uh, a, a time span. Myself and yourself will probably be retired at that mm. stage. It won't happen um, without any money, and therein lies 750 million problems. And, that, and that's the, the other key issue. And I was at a meeting with um, the Dublin Transport uh, Agency recently, and we asked, is there money assigned to this? They said, there's no money assigned to this at all. And secondly, it's up to a future government to decide on whether money is assigned to it. Mm. And so, you know, the problem is, and the worry, and many people will be cynical in me in, in relation to this, because we have been here before, where Noel Dempsey and Fianna Fáil promised that by 2016, the NAV and the Dublin rail line will, will be open. So what we're trying to do in the Media on Track campaign is to build pressure now on the government, on the state agencies to make sure that this is expedited and that the money is assigned and ring-fenced for it. Um, and what we're asking people from all uh, walks of life, political parties, different organisations, to join with us uh, tonight to set out a, a programme of work which will include you know, petitions, public meetings, demonstrations, you know, um, uh, contact with, with, with elected representatives, to expedite this because we can't face another 15, 20, 25 years potentially uh, of three-hour commutes uh, to Dublin for the people of Mead. And and secondly, Mm. if this is built, it means that in future it will help develop Mead as a location uh, for business, for jobs and for enterprise because we're not looking for Mead to become just a commuter county. We want the transport uh, to go both ways so that people will be working here in Mead as well. All right. Well, that's at 8 o'clock this evening. Eight o'clock in the in the Newgrange Hotel, um, and it's the Meet on Track campaign. This is probably outside of the hospital campaigns, probably the other really, really important elements for County Meath. Um, and I actually think that we may have an opportunity to push this. We, the, the, um, the listening ears in government are better now than they have been for the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, so I'd really encourage people to, you know, just to get out, to join the meeting, have their say and let's push for this to happen ASAP. Mm. How quickly could it be done? Well, what, what, I'm, what I believe it could be complete by 2031 uh, if the government meant business on this. That the government could actually make sure that the planning uh, was completely done and processed uh, by t- um, 2026 and look for a five year um, building uh, time on that. Um, and so, like, my worry is that. The longer it's left on the long finger, the less likely it would happen as well. Mm. Because right now, because it's such a long timescale, it's still in the realm of a political promise. Um, So, you know, we need the money to be assigned, ring-fenced and and settled down, and for the governments to to say that they will make sure that this is going to be built um, starting uh, 2026. All right, because it could be forgotten about, couldn't it? I mean, by people. People could sort of feel confident that it's going to happen and forget about it as an issue. Well, this, this, and we need to keep the pressure on because, um, you know, unfortunately, there is a short-termism in the political system. Most political parties, they just want to get to the next election and they'll do what it takes to get to the next election. You know, very few have a long-term view over the development of uh, this part of the country. And, you know, even if you take out the the misery of the commuter hell that so many people are spending on a daily basis, you know, there's a real need for this in terms of the environmental costs uh, of 
you know, leaving people in, in cars okay. uh, for, the, for the next 15 or 20 years. 8 o'clock in the new Grange then this evening if uh, people want uh, to go along. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed Thank for you. joining us. Panatobi, name to leader and founder and TD for Mead West. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.